Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder, one of the co-hosts of this fabulous show. And I am the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition, and the head of culture at Refound. And I am joined today by my other co-host of our show, Af Maholtra. Af, would you say a few words about yourself? Hi, Rick. Thank you very much. Welcome to another fantastic uh, Straight Talk.Live show. I'm Af Malhotra, co-creator of Straight Talk.Live, of course, and the co-founder of Growth Enabler. Very excited to have a tremendous guest on the show today, Hugh Hessing. And uh, the topic today, Rick, is uh, something that's close to my heart because of my history in the corporate. And of course, uh, the genesis of my business Growth Enabler has stemmed from this, this dilemma or this conundrum around why these big companies have been um, you know, stifled or unable to really adopt technology advances and innovation like the tech titans have in the past. And last week we had, uh, it was last week, we had Mateo, right? Uh, on oh, we had, uh, two, week, two weeks ago we had Mateo for the dark two weeks side ago, of the tech gosh, titans. Yeah. Flying by, right. So Mateo was on the show talking about the dark side of the tech titans. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's such an important topic where every single person on this call who, who is an employee, part of a workforce in a big company, a leader of sorts, uh, running large organizations, even entrepreneurs for, for that matter, and academics who come onto our show. We're just constantly scratching our heads to try and work out why these large organizations with so much money, so much capital, excellent brands, history um, that goes you know, into, into decades, if not uh, a couple of centuries, especially insurance and financial services institutions and organizations. Why aren't these organizations quick and fast enough to be as as sexy, as attractive as the tech titans. And there's only one person um, or a set of people, should I say, who can answer this question. And they're generally the folks who run companies, CEOs, CFOs, COOs, and so on. And today I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that we've got Hugh from a, um, a former executive at a large insurance company who's going to be talking to us. So let's crack on over to you. Rick, and then um, let's open the, the floodgates of, of provocative conversations. Yes, I'm totally excited to have you on our show, Hugh. And just for those who are tuning in, maybe for the first time, Straight Talk Live is a nonprofit, and we're dedicated to human transformation, digital transformation, and social impact. And I can't think of a better topic that dives deeply into this than our topic today around global enterprises. How, they, how do they actually stifle innovation? How do they get in their own way? and prevent the transformation that happens. And I know for many of you, we can even take the example of Apple where so many years they were the leaders of innovation, but now I can guarantee I'm not that excited about iPhone 20. It's gonna have a little bit better camera, a little bit more speed than iPhone 19, the way things are going. So what is it that, even, even for the tech titans, right? Like what is it that happens where some of that creativity, some of the risk taking, some yes. of the willingness to break models and break paradigms and think who's who's not our customer how do we go after them and how do we at least talk to them and get to know their world and so that's why i'm thrilled today to in, uh, have hugh hessing on our show so hugh welcome to straight talk live hi guys and uh, good morning or good afternoon everyone we're whatever part of the world you're in um i'm hugh hessing and after that wonderful introduction from rick and af i wonder why they've got a corporate executive or someone who's consulted in the co corporate executive space for the last 25 years on this show but i'll give it a go about my own personal view and experiences of where 
I've seen the big things that get in the way of leaders thinking differently and embracing new, embracing the opportunity that innovation brings. It's not easy. I'm not going to stereotype everything. But my background is very early on in my career, I could have been pretty good at being a technical person, but I, that bored me and I found my way into process improvement and consultancy at a very young age. And I just, it was just something that I was natural at. And I then dipped in and out of wanting to be an accountable leader um, and improving businesses um, in every, mainly in financial services. We'll come back to that later in the show, hopefully. Um, and um, then I've gone back to consulting. I enjoy analyzing problems, helping clients and building out plans and executing them to transform their business. But I, but I also enjoy being the leader in that business, sponsoring and designing that change. So I've got a rich career. For those that don't know Aviva that well, it was about the 15th largest insurer in the world. It's an international business, but mainly is the largest life and general insurance UK underwriter in the, in the UK. So um, it's a big business, about three billion pounds of profits. I was the CEO of the three businesses in Ireland. I've done many operational leadership businesses across the piece. And my last role that ended in March was chief operating officer across 15 million customers in all parts of their business in the UK. So that's me, Rick, in a very quick run through. So uh, where do you want to go from here? Yeah, wonderful. Um, thanks for the background. And one of the things you were mentioning on our pre, on the call right before we got on here live is that you're often a right brain individual in a left brain world, right? And so you often will find yourself, you know, obviously, in financial services, insurance, when you look around the C-suite and what have you, it's like you have, you're coming from a different angle. And, and that's really, I would offer... Uh, most like the value that you really bring to the conversation. So can you just say a little bit about your own personal driver? Like what motivate, what's motivated you to be in that seat, to want to have that different voice? And, and just tell us a little bit about how does that get you up in the morning? Yeah, I, I mean, at I, I, one level through the majority of my career, I've, I've, I've loved solving complex problems. And I won't deny I still love solving complex problems. That there's not without the right resources and time there's not a problem i don't think that we could solve collectively um and and that's what has ultimately got me out of bed but what i found is and i've worked in many industries and i've worked with many companies over the years there are some brilliantly skilled people in senior positions but they're good at one or two things and they're okay at the other four or five things that are required to bring that team to life whereas I've always got excited by I'm a holistic leader. I join the dots of the business. I think it's an absolute essential requirement. I, I see that, the, 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 you know, we can talk about this later, the role between IT divisions and operational divisions and business divisions becoming much more merged. There are some companies that are so far ahead in this space and there are other organizations that we could probably know and name and some of us work for them that that they are enemies within the own, their own tight team. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I enjoy, and what gets me out of bed in the morning is joining the dots on problem, the mm. emotional content of what drives individuals, the financial commercial outcomes that a business need to make to be sustainable, but also all pivoted around 
what does the customer actually want and are we making it simple for them to attain that mm. sounds easy it's bloody hard to do mm. And, then, and I think you, we're, we're going down a pathway which is going to be very interesting for all. And before you open up the, the, uh, the treasure chest of wisdom and all of these amazing insights that we know you have, um, you've come up with something really quite interesting. You call it SCAR and um, probably an appropriate, apt um, acronym for what you're going to share with us. Tell us a little bit more about SCAR and tell us about why it's so important for, for us to understand um, the biggest barriers that are holding organizations back from being not just innovative, I think from being a quick, agile, um, increasing the velocity and pace of evolution of a business. Every business evolves, every individual evolves, every leader should, must evolve. What's, uh, what's happened here? Why have organizations slowed down? Why do they behave like relics of the past and so on? And um, I'd love you to just unpack SCAR for, for the audience. If you don't mind, Ak, I'm just gonna wind back a bit to some couple of points in my career and life, which have been sort of like um, key moments where it's made me stop and think about my own personal brand, my own personal leadership, good or bad. But um, um, number one was um, my first introduction to systems thinking. It wasn't a great one. We were, we were vanguarded. Uh, I've got a lot of respect for Vanguard, by the way. I didn't like the consultant that was on my piece of work. We were reimagining how we worked and looking at work in a different way than I'd ever done. And by the way, I'd done Lean, I'd done Sigma, I'd done everything. I was the best process consultant I'd ever met, yeah? And suddenly I had some of my best leaders who I took out of the work to look at the work, tell me that what I'd been doing was in a, in a, in a little bit way, I'd been cheating the system, not knowingly, but I'd been cheating the system and the best, but it was a, I was running a very large sales operation and the best sales operatives who I used to run around the contact center and high five on a Friday and, 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 and embrace and give all the rewards to were actually the best at playing the system. They weren't the best cross-sellers. They weren't the best. And, and it sounds obvious now, but this was 10, 12 years ago, and I'm on a journey to be a better leader through learning through data. Mm. Yeah. And, and so there was a key moment there where I thought what the outcomes were great, but I wasn't looking deep enough on the root causes of what was trying, driving people's behaviors. I've also been lucky enough to be in a position where I was the only person when I looked in the mirror in the morning where I was the accountable person. I didn't have anyone else to blame. Mm. And, and I had all of these fears inside me about um, how am I going to survive? Can I do this job? And I just worked very hard to go through some simple routines to try and overcome what all leaders do when they're in a tough position, they're, they're presented with challenging problems. If you keep central to a core, and my core at the time was to sustainably improve profits for Aviva, yeah, I always came back and was centered and happy that if I made decisions around central uh, purposes, that I could feel comfortable I'd done my best, whether they, they, they worked or not, they didn't. However, 
coming to your point, um, uh, I, I came up with SCAR just through making some notes um, through what I've seen and what I've experienced over the last 25 years with senior execs in many organisations about the typical things that get in the way. There are many things that get in the way of people being more risk-taking with their careers, more mm. innovative or transformative in their thinking. Yeah. And mm. I just put them like this. I need to survive. I must be competitive with others. It's easier to be competitive with others internally in my business than maybe externally, because that's really hard. I want autonomy, not because I want to be an accountable individual, but I want to wrap my arms around my problems. I don't necessarily want to let anyone in easily. And I want reward. Yeah. Reward is what feeds the, the level of survival that I've set myself, my family, my health, my wealth, etc. And whilst on the face of it, there can be nothing wrong with those things. I see that they command a significant percentage of management time, fighting for resources, gaming the system. And it's actually limits the level of transformative thinking because it means extra risk for the organization. So rather than looking at the risk of external factors and changing models and startups and how tech is changing the way in which we work and consumers and corporates consume our products, we're still looking at next year's um, activity, what I'm doing today versus my internal peers. And then it's reinforced by three things i mean it's reinforced by many processes and systems that all major corporations have but these are the three that i would pick out what i'd call the unholy trinity performance management reward and incentives and planning and budgeting they reinforce those behaviors and leaders thinkings that i just referred to in scar on 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 a on a regular regular basis i i know many companies that were still telling me that their plan was set last october i was talking to them about how they were dealing with covid and how they were dealing with lockdown and they were talking to me about well we've still got to hit plan and i'm hmm. thinking well did you go back to your cfo and say didn't remember the words covid19 or coronavirus in in the plan assumptions mm -hmm. yeah so so it it's it stifles thinking and will lead to short-termism yeah and i could i, I, I mean af please yeah, if you want to delve a bit further i could go on yeah, yeah. i want to i want to just jump in really quick on one thing before we continue the scar sure. piece which i want to go deeper with too you know you're hitting a so as an executive coach one of the things that i see all the time that um i have to work with is that self-preservation mentality that you're talking mm -hmm. about and it's one of the hardest shifts that I make with an individual is helping them go beyond me, 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 and that fear survival uh, aspect that you're talking about in SCAR to realize, oh, if I just focus on self-preservation, that's going to actually get me out of the position. It's not actually the safe thing to do. It's actually, that's actually the risk because I'm not taking uh, innovation. I'm not, um, I'm not putting my attention on what's the most value that I can actually provide for my team, for the company, and I lose that thread. And yeah, I see I, this time and time again. Yeah, so my, I, my, my question really quick is, sure. how do you make, because obviously what happens on an individual level is going to be reflected in the organization. Yeah. 
So how do you work with that when you see your colleagues around the table or, you know, or, or whoever that might be, and you can see that self-preservation me, me mentality, how do you tend to work with that to help them get into a different mindset? Well, I, th I think we're still going through a bit of a cusp and, 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 and we work, I work in an industry that you get paid for transferring risk and you sell invisible promises. So, 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 and it hasn't changed a tremendous amount. We cover lots of different things for 330 years. So what I've seen is people know that they should be more transformative, but they know the pace of change in financial services has tended to be relatively slow. What we're seeing with new technology and new capability today, the pace of change is suddenly picking up. And, and I think there's, 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 there's kind of three levels that I'd layer to you to answer your question. There's those executives that are near the end of their career, Rick, that are mm. probably going, I'm not probably the right person, but am I being building succession plan with people who can make sure this company is still here in 25 years? Mm. And there's that wonderful graph where at the last 50 years of... Um, the, uh, the, 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 the 20th century, you'd be in the S&P 500 for sort of like 30 years, or you'd be in the FTSE 100 for like 20 years. Yeah. And now that's decimated. You're likely to be in the, the, the S&P for about 20, you know, 50, 10 years, if you're lucky, because you will get eaten or, or consumed by others, etc. unless you called Apple or something like that. Yeah. And, and so the mindset has got to change for the generation that's going to follow me mm. and, and, and follow some of the executives you're leading. The middle management who are of a similar age and have reached a peer, they are what we call a phrase in the UK, we call the permafrost. Yeah, they are the people that absolutely rely on the complexity of their roles and the status quo. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes I think what you have to do is go over them, go around them, go through them, not ask for their permission, not work with, because they are they are the worst of the status quo layer. Yeah, mm -hmm. because they they are well rewarded. They are comfortable and they that, that, that survival is the common thing. They have no interest in the pressures that executive mm -hmm. life springs but they also have no interest in doing anything too risky that might risk their families or the, the long career that they've deserved and done really well on. Mm -hmm. yeah? yeah. And sometimes in a couple of experiences I've got, I've just, I've gone from me as CEO when I was in Ireland to literally just the people on the ground who had a, a bit of a life and a spunk for innovation and wanted to do something different. And I worked directly with them. And then we showed our work to the management and the executive after a three month period of doing some fun things. Yeah. And recruiting some new people with new thinking. So mm -hmm. sometimes you have to just go round or go through Rick. Mm -hmm. mm. It's he, he, kind of one of the answers. Mm -hmm. mm. I, I think to add to Rick's point, I know where he's going with this. Um, and appreciate your view on this. I think what's interesting here is that there is an as is situation, right? What Rick's referring to right now and what we see with large organizations um, is that there are executives who are in jobs right now. They're not going anywhere. 
but the organization is calling for change. It's pleading for change. It may be top down or it may be bottom up, who knows? But that layer, whether it's a middle layer in the sandwich or it's at the top, who knows, or it's the, the slice of bread, don't know. It could be the CEO, him or herself, in, in many cases, who, who knows. Um, what do you do about it today? What do you do about it today? Because I, I hear you, you've got to bring in new leadership, you've got to bring in the next generation, you've got to go and attract um, talent that you've never attracted before. And, and that takes time. But who's going to mandate that? I mean, I agree that the blockers are going to be the status quo guys or the people. But what do we do now, right now, at this moment to drive change? Or should we say, well, not much, Af. It is what it is. You have to let it play itself out, you know, because that's another school of thought, of course. I, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things. There's, there's no easy, depending on where you are in the organization, Af. Yeah. Um, if you're CEO, you can just create a bit of capacity and, and have a sandpit or have a, a greenfield site or actually set up an e innovation model that you are um, really wanting to, to, to accelerate in the organization. What, what I did in Ireland was to bring people's awareness to what innovative thinking and what innovation could do for a business as an educational piece rather than any specific one thing. To, to actually grasp disruptive technology, yeah. understand what it could do, be more learned about what was coming over the hill, yeah. because otherwise you could be, so, 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 so I had the ability to do that. If you're a middle manager, and, and, and I don't want to say that, 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 that doesn't sound right, but if you're a part of the organization where you can't just go off and create that kind of capacity, listen to your people who are talking to the customers the most, yeah mm -hmm. and give them freedom to change their processes and change their practices and learn and measure and do different things um within a construct mm -hmm. and then see the art of the possible ah if we had that bit of um analytics technology or that analytics tool we could up our next best action we could improve revenue we could become more efficient but the people closest to the customer tend to be the people with the best ideas rather than me saying, well, I've got all the ideas because I've got I've 30 years in the business. I'm a CEO, so I must know more than you. Nothing's further from the truth. Make it clear to people who are competent, what you expect of them and let them tell you what's best. Yeah. Mm. Are you, and I think one part of this is you need to be willing to be uh, ejected or fired, right? From an organization, because in order to change any situation that you would call status quo, um, you know, whether you take what Steve Jobs said for years, you know, challenge the status quo or, um, you know, uh, you speak to any entrepreneur or entrepreneur in an organization has managed to shake the tree and uh, see the rewards. I think you have to almost accept that if you're going to do something that goes against the grain of the culture and your intent is a good one where you want to drive change, you want to create, um, I, you know, get the best out of the organization and, and uh, derive the potential that it, it, it truly deserves to, um, to live up to, you have to be willing to get ejected or get fired from the organization. And I think, I'm, I'm talking to some of the points, I think Bill, I think it's Bill Fraser, a dear friend uh, of mine, and an, and, a, and an old school, you know, sort of a veteran leader from the Bell Labs days, he's on the call. And uh, he's just made a really good point about the Ten Commandments of entrepreneurs. Which, which, which I think is bang on. One of which is about I like the fact that he says 
um, what was it? It's about the race, you know, um, don't bet on a race unless you're running it, you know, um, or never bet on a race unless you're running it. Um, and I, and I, what, what do you think about that? Because I think there's, you know, for those who are going to listen to this, and they're a little bit frustrated or they're torn or they're thinking, well, I've got golden handcuffs here. I've got some share options, whatever it may be, but I'm say, I'm giving an arbitrary age in my mid forties or early fifties. I still have an opportunity to shapeshift. I still have an opportunity to live up to my potential over the last decade or so. I haven't been able to. What, what do you say to those people? Do they follow this stuff or do they say, well, you know, I just have to suck it up and, and go with the flow. Yeah, I'm just looking at Bill's points and I, I agree with all of them. And, you know, the, the one that you just said, I was part of the race. The thing that I set off in Ireland, I was actually in the team, part yeah. of the team, learning and, 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 and wanting to be very visible as the person supporting them as they did that. Um, and so um, you, you, you've got to work for someone who's going to give you the opportunity to, to, to maybe do something slightly different. And if, if those people who... There's no point in trying to go in search for those people to say, right, you're all going to have 10% of your week that's going to try and be innovative. You've got to find the people that want to break out or want to break the rules to a certain extent, yeah, and allow them to do some different things. You've got to understand what your people's motivations are, where they are, if they're frustrated in the dead-end role, give them some opportunities. But it is a state of mind from the individual. My own career has kind of plateaued, gone, gone crazy, plateaued, gone crazy, because I've taken risks with my career so I could learn different things. And there are, there are many, many people who are like that, gone horizontal in learning different parts of a business so that they could be better performant and more rounded mm. as, as they move up the, the, the corporate ladder, if that's what they wanted to do, or to add value in a different way. Um, I, 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 I think that if you find those people and you can give them the freedom to either 100% go and commit to something. And, and I just saw one of the questions, I think Joe just raised up a question there. It's come off my, 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 my screen for a minute about how, how, do you, how do you make sure those people can um, carry on and, 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 and what gets in the way of holding people to account. Uh, what you don't want to do to stifle innovation is immediately measure every result and, and crack people for not hitting their intended aim straight away. What you mustn't do though, is not have a learning culture in place where individuals who are trying things, both good and bad, aren't demonstrating their learning so that they can share that. And then when they go again to the next phase of an agile project or the next phase of their innovation attempt or their next phase of the second thing that they want to do, they're taking that learning forward. Not having a learning organization is unacceptable if you want to be an innovative company going forward. Um, mm. Just cracking on people because you, you have wanted to go off and do something and it didn't work. Me beating on you is not gonna, it's not gonna engender mm. a, 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 an environment where people are willing to take risks. But what yes. I won't tolerate is people not willing to learn about how they were successful. Anyone who you look at that someone's success on a graph and you ask them, how did you do that? And they didn't quite know. Well, part of that is going to be luck. And I treat success and failure as an equal imposter. It's about understanding what really drove it and caused it and then repeating it. You yeah. know, I want to, I want to make one little point here that uh, speaks to what you're talking about that you need to have a learning culture. 
And, and, and if you're going to have growth, you actually need to have a growth mindset and a growth culture. And those dots connect right away where a lot of people don't often see that at first blush, right? Because you're just looking at the innovative products, services, whatever. But if you don't have that growth culture and mindset to begin with, and so one of the ways I've seen this happen is the willingness to give feedback, the willingness to have the courageous conversation, not just downstream, but also laterally to your colleagues and managing up. That's the yeah. courageous conversation is how do you give feedback? And, and to answer Joe's question from my experience, what gets in the way of that? I often see it's fear is usually what holds me back from having those conversations, fear of repercussions or a conversation that goes bad or being misinterpreted, whatever that looks like. It could also be the excuse like, oh, I just don't have enough time or they don't have enough time. So I'm not going to well, even touch that, the, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that I've seen is that peer feedback is exceptionally difficult to unwind from being political mm. if you have an, inv an in incentivization or reward system and performance management system where you are competing against your fellow person. Talk more about that. Talk more about that. So I've sat in meetings where you've asked for feedback and I've done something brilliant or I've done something really rotten. You'll get one or two people who kind of don't care and will give it to you either way. You were great. You were rubbish. And this is why, bang, bang, bang. You will get the modest people who will go, well, I think this could have been done slightly different or I was really impressed with that. You know, they're just being polite. And then you'll get the people who don't want to create enemies they don't want to um upset the apple cart they want little try little uh, gangs in the in their in the corporate i think we just lost you. oh there you are yeah yeah they're the people who will stay silent and um and and those cultures that have mastered um this the best in my experience rick are those where the culture of feedback is just what you do because you're all wedded to a common purpose. You're all wedded to helping each other out, sharing the best resources to win for the company. Yeah. Slice of the end of year review or my slice of the investment portfolio. Yeah, because if Hugh does bad, I might get an extra 5% in the portfolio. So these systemic things, these processes that we put in that we think help run our companies reinforce a lot of the behaviors that don't facilitate transparency, quality feedback, and a common purpose for all to achieve from maybe one person's key success, but everybody wins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's you win i lose mm -hmm. so i don't I, I'm, I'm glad you're on my team rick i want i recognize you probably deserve to win a bit more than me but i can't let you win everything because I, I and and i see that a lot mm -hmm. i have seen that a lot throughout are my you, career are you saying again i'm just playing devil's advocate are you saying that this doesn't exist in the tech titans and the big organizations that are ruling the planet today in terms of market cap and so on that we're all excited I, about i'm i i don't know enough about their operations today but in the in their origin yeah they were very wedded about a common purpose and growth and mm -hmm. scaling up and and had 
reinforced iconic routines that would reinforce learning that would reinforce the customer is at the heart of everything yeah now as every organization gets massive yeah there will be a competition yeah for investment there'll be a competition within each other's i can't talk about google i can't couldn't talk about the inside of amazon today yeah so i'm not saying it's not there but their recent origin and success has come from a collaboration and a common purpose more so than the institutionalized companies that I've either consulted on or worked with over the last 25, 30, year, 30 years. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I worked in an organization, wasn't Aviva, where one of the key competencies as a senior exec was, was, was beating on your fellow executive and beating them rather than helping them. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was a, a, a culture that was a complete anathema to me, which is, it's, it's a company that wanted me to join them, which I would never have joined because it mm -hmm. just, it, it had less collegiate behavior, less collaboration at the soul of it. But what they wanted was individual big hitters, whether he or she was going to win their market. And if that meant treading on some of their colleagues, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, fine. That, that, that's just not an organization that I'd want to be work of work for. Yeah. You know, one of the aspects of SCAR is rewards that you had mentioned. And yeah. we had talked about this before in our call. And this is so fascinating to me. You know, if so much of the corporate space is dedicated toward the shareholder value at the end of the day, that when you get to that top, you know, you're in the club and you can't wait for your next dividends to come through and your bonuses and so much of the profitability is, is you know, toward the shareholder value at the end of the day. How does this ever change? Because if that gets incentivized as the main, you know, you made it to the top and now let's keep you there. Um, how do we redefine ownership? How do we really break that open so that the, the finances flow to the right places that keep the organization alive and flourishing? Do you have any ideas of how the heck do we break that model? Not any that, that, that are absolutely bulletproof, but, but um, yeah, if you get into the deep root causes of quarterly projections, analysts, and, and how sh shares are priced and how they're effective, um, that is a completely another world that needs to be addressed. But, but, but what I find is, and what I've experienced across many companies, and I still see it today, Rick, is yes, we're all rewarded in shares and rewarded in cash bonuses and having investments and those companies that have tended to do best are those ones that have got high levels of employee share ownership. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but, but what then happens immediately is individual goals. So you go from one share price to how many shares I'm going to get allocated are rightly down to my individual goals. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I did in part when I was in certain parts of the business, and I'll certainly take to my next role is we're all much more connected as an executive teams and our management teams to a collective performance of the business mm -hmm. that is much more focused against relative performance to the peers, to the ambitions, long-term ambitions we set rather than short-term and individuals. Yes, I would have a level of it that is down to individual performance, but it's kind of 2080 and I'd make it 8020. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. I'd want there to be a collect. So I would give up my best resources to AF because AF has, AF has got the best plan. If he executes on that, I think that will make the biggest difference 
to the group share price. I mm. think that could make the we could win market share or we could gain extra margin, whatever whatever that is, and what's important for your strategic ambitions. But what I what I found is you go one step from we're all lined to how many shares we get, and then that's immediately driven by my personal goals. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you'll sit around a table of 10 people on an executive team. They'll each have top three goals. And when you add up all of the goals of those 10 people, it should add up to about six or seven. It probably adds up to 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine what 50% of that executive time is doing. It's me saying my second goal is more important than Aff's first goal. Rick's third goal is more important than my second goal. And where do the resources go? Does that make sense, guys? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you flip the model so you're more wedded about the things that are going to make the biggest difference to the firm, mm-hmm. knowing that you'll re- be rewarded if you, you do the things like collaborate, give resources up so the firm wins, Mm-hmm. But yeah, if AF has got the winning proposition and I've given him resources, then good luck. AF gets a bit more of the 20%, but not, and I'm using figures directionally here, but, but AF gets a bigger share for that and he deserves that and well done. But I get rewarded because the firm's going forward. Mm-hmm. Not, I get rewarded because I didn't go backwards, but the firm's staying still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, coming back to the, you know, what we're talking about here is, this is why it's risky thinking transformative. How many of you um, listeners have been there working in organizations where, and, and this has typically been what's, what's affected me, um, I'll offer you 14 and deliver 13, and there'll be people who will offer you 11 and deliver 12, and the 12s get all the biggest rewards. Yeah. yeah? Because we're driven by you didn't hit a plan. Mm-hmm. We didn't mm-hmm. hit... And, and, but sorry, don't, don't we want to move a bit further away and 13's a bit further away from the 10 we hit last year. Mm-hmm. And it's that paradigm that we have to overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then no, I don't want, I don't want to do two years on the trot of not hitting my, hitting a, a stated goal, but I want to learn from it. But you need recognition that you've hit 13 from 10. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm starting from a base of 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the caveat, I hear you, the caveat being, and I'm just wearing a sales hat and a performance hat, the caveat being, A, it's not happening every single year, number one, and, and B, you have to dig into the detail of what it is, what is it that you're trying to do the 13 or the 14 on, and even if you didn't hit plan or your forecast or whatever it may be, um, each role, each leader has a different responsibility in the business. If you're talking to the sales leader and the sales leader has to meet guidance and forever the sales leader is like, I'm going to hit 15, but I always end up at 12. Of course, you have an opportunity to put build more fat and forecast differently at a board level, which a lot of people do anyway. Um, but I, I think the point you're making, and I, it's a salient point, you're, what you're saying is you've got to give leaders and, and individuals in the organization the headroom the headroom and the space, and I'm going to say it, the space to experiment and maybe fail. Because unless you're allowed to fail, experiment, which means fail, experimentations by definition means it can go wrong. Unless you give people that freedom and a sense of, you know, it's the psychological safety session we did, which was a storming success, which is what we're talking about. If you look at the tech titans, even if you look at, you look at a startup like my company, my tech startup, you know, the mandate, the culture there is really simple. It's a simple manifesto, which is go fail. 
And we, yes, we can afford to do that. You would argue, well, it's okay, AF, because it's a smaller organization. You're like a SWAT team. You're like a bunch of SEALs going for it. Yes, agreed. But uh, the, the Amazons do it. The Facebooks do it. The um, Teslas do it, for, uh, for, you know, and, and so do the others. I'd phrase it slightly differently, AF. I think it is in certain parts of your business, think big, go learn. Yeah. 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 Think big, go learn. Mm. You don't want to use the word failure too much in the culture because whatever way you say, and I know you say it in a minute, it is still ingrained in it's one of the strongest parts of the, 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 the left center of the left part of your brain is driven by the thing called survival. Yeah. Uh, 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 that drives survival and, and fail will, will play with your mind. And if I think I could fail, what even though that I, you tell me and I trust you, F, you've got to be really clear with language. It is about learning. Yeah. Go and learn how to think big and learn what gets in the way of us accelerating to a more transformative outcome for our business. Yeah. And that could be building a completely new digital business in a greenfield site. It could be running an innovation R and D center and experimenting to your world and knowing that 16 things out of 20 you do might be absolute fluff and actually four might be gold. Yeah. But learning from the 16 and learning from the four and then repeating that process. I think it was Unilever. They may still have it that used to have the 22 program where 40 of their best graduates and individuals that had come through the business would go away, come up and work on 20 processes. And then the, the, the 36 that didn't work on the two winners. Yeah. The two propositions or the two products would mm. all go and work for the two products that won. Mm. through the first phase mm. of innovation mm. so they mm. were incentivized to go and make the best ideas work the best and you put the best people on execution and and that's very rare in certainly financial services that kind of culture you've just got to find the model that's going to fit right for you you know aviva we went and just built a brand new part of a business to to not be beset by all the slow processes that would normally drag down a digital transformation. Now, we know that not everything in that digital transformation journey was of value and was great. However, the assets that were built in three years would never have been built if you'd have left it in the original model. Mm. And so each leader or each CEO will find their way to release their organization to do, to do smarter things. Yeah, but you mustn't have a blame culture You've got to have a learning culture to back it up. So my question, I have a question there. So if you think about triggers, this concept of triggers where you're there, an event happens, like we had the pandemic and it's, it's forced us to do stuff like this and it's changed the behavior. It's created a new habit. It's uh, created transformations in its own right. Um, I often find that external intervention, we talked about coaching earlier on, and I'm talking about, you know, what Rick's doing is external coaching. External coach comes into an organization to shake things up. And it's funny, it's a little bit like uh, when you have kids and your parents tell you to do something and it's like, you know, falls on deaf ears and then your mate tells you to do it and suddenly you think, oh my God, it makes so much sense. It could be the same advice, but delivered by a different person, right? And that's, it's very important. I mean, that's how human beings work often. And so tell me, tell us a little bit about how, external intervention, be it coaching, be it insights. I mean, I'm, I'm finding something really spectacular here that, you know, when you're looking at risks and, you, and you, you're great at this because you talked about this earlier in terms of crises 
and crisis management situations. When you look at um, black swans, you look at discontinuities, you look at um, unforeseen risks, you look at unknown catastrophes, mostly what we're seeing, and through my research and, and many people on this call and folks that I'm engaging with, um, large organizations tend to spend millions of dollars with consultancies on analyzing familiar risks, not unfamiliar unknown risks. Um, tell us about how that affects culture and triggers a, a more um, maverick behavioral style with a leader who says, blimey, I, I didn't realize, yes, we should go in this direction. So, so I'm, I'm going to respond to your, your point about crisis with, a different, with an answer to the question you didn't ask, but it really brings quite a point of culture. One of the things, I used to run crisis management for the UK, and for good and bad reasons, we had lots of practice and lots of real exercises where we had some pretty major operational failings over an 18-month period. And one thing that I used to say at the end of every one of those to all of my executive colleagues, the CEOs of the life and the general insurance business was during the last two days, we came together and pulled together like a team like we never do. And it was pretty obvious because we had one common purpose. We knew our accountabilities and where the competencies were, and we allowed each other to get on with our respective accountabilities and we supported each other. What then happens the day after the crisis, we all go back to the, the, our day job and our reward and what drives us anyway. So that's re repeating the other job, is how do you stay in that crisis for longer? Yeah. Yeah. But so, so I think from in terms of answering your question about externals, I think, well, look, one of the models that Aviva did, they, they set up a seed fund so that we would have 100 million of investments in startups that were adjacent to things that were going to become important. This was five years ago to things in Aviva. So data management, automation and um, prevention, mm. uh, whether that was wellness or whether that was PNC prevention, you know, preventing risks happening, et cetera, et cetera. And what it did, it, it introduced existing executives to more what the innovative tech was doing and more what disruption could be coming down the line and into business models. And for a period of time that was vibrant. We all went on hacks. We all learned new ways. We looked in astonishment at some of the startups going never on my dead body and oh my God, I want to invest tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What, what organizations need to do though is institutionalize that into learning. In today's world, if you haven't got a disruptive technology part of your staple executive leadership um, portfolio, development portfolio, you will get left behind. Yeah, because the data titans, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons will are coming after us in our little old insurance industry that hasn't changed for 320 years and we we sit there and bathe in the huge amounts of capital that people need to have to come in we bathe in the complexity we've designed over the last 330 years and we bathe in the regulatory hurdle they are all surmountable and we are light years behind of the way mm. that people think about mm. data yeah, and the Internet of Things. I think the Internet of Things will be one of the things that most aggressively impacts how we think about it mm. delivering insurance products over the next five mm. to ten years. Yeah, mm. Hugh, I want and, to. Uh, oh, sorry. Go for it. Development. So I think 
where I see more needs to be done is institutionalized executive development around opening your mind up, thinking differently, understanding what's going to change business models and being up there with the leading players in the competition. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, I want to remind people to bring in their questions in our last, uh, you know, 12 minutes here. So if you're tuning into Facebook uh, Live or YouTube, please bring in your questions and we'll, we'll bring the best here. I want to bring in a question from Courtney. And so, Hugh, I want to get your advice on this, is how to best de-escalate competition while aiming to hit your marks, specifically when you're negotiating an in-house collaboration uh, to better the firm's results and your senior leader may be threatened by your increased performance of an underling, right? Mm -hmm. And so how, what advice do you have to someone in that position? How do you work with that when you know your senior leader is potentially threatened by you stepping out and shining? Um, how um, do you work with that? Uh, there's no simple answer. And I've just read your question. Thank you, Courtney. Um, engagement. Yeah, mm -hmm. don't avoid it because well, I might be upsetting the senior leader. I don't want to rub their face in it. Or, you know, I for some senior leaders, what I have done or some peers that have been mm -hmm. ultra competitive mm -hmm. and would actively have loved to have seen part of my programs fail. Yeah. <laughs> silently or not so silently rooting for yeah, your fail. Both, both Rick. Um, I have given something up. Yeah. And yeah. it's very uh -huh. unnatural and unnerving. So I've gone to them and said, well, look, look, this is how I'm helping your part of the business. This is what I, it's going to do for me. But if I gave you this and they look at me and go, sorry, he's, he's, he's giving me something. Mm. And, and, and why am I, why are you doing that? Well, I, I want to demonstrate, I want to help you because I think this could help you get better, but, mm. but I need your support in X, Y, and Z and bring them in, make it a team of them. Don't make mm. as best as you can, but what you mustn't do is avoid engagement. Mm. However difficult it is, however tough that message is avoiding engagement. And I procrastinated Courtney with the best of them in my career. And I've lived to regret it. Why the bloody hell didn't I just have a conversation with them? They're a human being. Ultimately we all want each other to do okay. Mostly let's, let's, let's see if we can come to some kind of a, a, an arrangement. That's it's not, it's not a, there's no a magic answer, but that's what I've done in my experience. Brilliant. Great point. Can I, can I ask you a question? Um, if, if you think about employment and you think about talent of tomorrow, especially with what's going on right now in the world and, and mass unemployment rates and so on, but I'm just, you're talking now to the next generation leaders, right? Hugh, Let, let's imagine the question came from one of them and they say, so, so are you saying, uh, well, let me flip it another way. What, what's the, what's the incentive? Why should I apply for a traditional organization? Why should I join the graduate scheme of a company that's still trying to sort out its own mess and, on, and try and work out whether it is digital or not? Why wouldn't I just go apply for all of the cool startups and the tech titans of the planet? It's a, I'm, I'm throwing it out there. It's provocative, but yeah. I have to ask you that. Well, so two or three immediate answers. One, they have afforded me and many others a very rich and varied career. Yeah. And I'm not, I, I've moved, I've only had five or six organizations I've ever worked for, but, but within one company, you can move around a company and as a, as a, as a graduate or as a new entrant and, and enjoy that and join the dots and be the person that can do, join the dots better than those people who've stayed in one technical 
function for a long period. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one of the advantages joining one corporate. Don't, don't just stay in one division, learn the business end to end, embrace the business, prove that you can do it in each part of the business. And that will be certainly great for people's careers. And, mm -hmm. but you've got a common ground and the common set of values. If you work for a company where you don't like the values I, and you can afford it, my heart goes out to you, please find another role. Mm -hmm. it, values are so important. We spend 40% of our life asleep. We spend 40% of our life going to work or, and at work, enjoy it while you're there. And values are the most, and behaviors of individuals is the most important thing in mm -hmm. that. Um, so I, I, I think, I also think that more and more large corporates are looking different. So I think the Amazons, the, the Facebooks, the Googles are getting into different things as yeah. they're emerging. Um, and I think that progressive senior leaders of certainly the large insurance brokers and some of the insurance companies are starting to recognize that they need more of this talent and they need to take more bets of a disruptive nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. am, I, am I saying that um, insurance is as fast moving as Amazon retailing? No, I'm not. But it is getting there. The likes of AXA have a huge R&D fund in disruptive innovation and, and how that could be applied back into their business. And they're just two, two large insurance companies. So I think more and more it is becoming ever present in organizations. It's still got a few years to become a normal way of thinking and a normal way of working. And there's probably a strata of management that just needs to work its way out af before mm. it becomes much more prevalent. Yeah. Mm. Mm. My final point, my final question, I promise it is, uh, you were a chief operating officer and you took on a CEO role in, in Aviva as well in, in Ireland. Um, if I go back to the, the sort of, in, you know, the concept of value propositions and startups and enterprises selling into large organizations, you don't often see the COO in the prospect list. Uh, gross generalization, but having done this for a long time, it's the CIO, maybe the CEO, business unit CEO, these days the digital officer. What is your, what is your prediction or your view on what the future COO role should be and will look like? Well, I, I think I've mentioned it earlier. I, th I think business models are changing and technology and, and operations and manufacturing, they're becoming much closer together. Yeah, much mm -hmm. closer together. And in fact, if, if, you're, if you're changing your business models, and I know some people wanted to talk about business models and I could talk about that, um, you've got to have a, 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 an executive team that can all understand at a much better level than they do today, the needs and wants of all of their executive colleagues. So you'll talk a common language and yeah. don't just like park something. My role as COO of Aviva, by the way, included CIO. Yeah. So nice. I had the IT organization um, underneath me as well. So, so, so that made me very integrated into what we needed to do from a tech point of view, the disciplines we needed to have, for change management and how we served our customers better. So I had a really rich conversation with the people who were designing the propositions, manufacturing the prices and then distributing them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But teams need to be much, much tighter. Digitization, the internet of things are just, just, just changing distribution models. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you, know, you, you become a platform for services, whereas you used to be a manufacturer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
know, but Bezos didn't set out to be one of the largest cloud providers of revenue in the world. It just naturally evolved because he needed capacity to support his core business, which was delivering things in two days at a reasonable price on a fantastic website. That's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And, and those things will only evolve if you have a culture where people can express themselves against the common purpose. Yeah. Mm. You, let me uh, throw in a question from Matteo, um, who's with us live here. So he's, he asks, which UK pensions and savings companies or financial service corporates generally are doing the best in leading the way, which could include learning culture, innovation, SCAR, etc.? Yeah, I think, I think there's some new startups. They're immaterial in terms of, uh, uh, so, so the one that you'll see, Pension B, I think Aviva's got one, Wealthify, these are itty-bitty market share startups. They're making people's savings a bit more fun and a bit more accessible, yeah? Mm. And I think this is what the big companies have done. They've, they've, they've brought in these startups or they're bringing in, they're acquiring um, niche models that, that can change the paradigm about how we give advice. This is a very UK question, so apologies to my US colleagues. Everyone in the UK is who works as a regulated person is frightened of the word advice because if they give it too much, they could go, they could be fined or censured from ever working again. Mm. So we are fixated about the word advice. There are niche companies that are doing that really well, making it fun and educating. Mm. I think each of the pension companies are starting to recognize that where they're, where they've got their biggest Achilles heel, the data they collected 15, 20, 25 years ago on this huge bank of wealth, which is the old pension products is not the data they need today to engage you better, engage you smartly and engage you efficiently. And, and how do you get that data? to then become a modern player in a digitized world. And that's, that's the biggest channel that it, it, the established corporates are all facing and they're all mm -hmm. doing their own things. And they, you know, I wouldn't say they're sitting on their hands, but that's not an easy and an overnight problem to crack. Mm. I think it will be the acquisition of bolt on education tools mm. for pension companies, smart fund organizers, consolidation tools that will that will start to make the established companies um, look better and more efficient for their companies, for their customers going forward. So apologies to my US visitors. That was a very UK centric answer. Thanks, Mattia. <laughs> so Hugh, as we're winding down, uh, love to hear any final words for our audience around, you know, how do you prevent stifling innovation? How do you actually support it? Uh, how do you get that growth mindset in your culture with your peers, with your, if you're managing up, and you have to have those courageous conversations. Any final words? Yeah, I, I, I make really push hard that you can see you've got systems of practice in your business that are reinforcing collaboration. Really push hard that you've got systems of practice that are helping the company learn and think bigger. Yeah. Mm. Planning and budgeting typically that I've seen over the last 20 years has led people to think short-term and incrementally and, mm. and being rewarded well for being incremental in their thinking and performance. Yeah. So is that happening in your organization? What would, what could be considered could be different. And whilst talking about processes like performance management, reward, 
might seem ancillary, I can tell you in my 35 years experience, they drive the vast majority of behaviors, mm -hmm. time spent and meetings in senior financial services organizations. And so try to address and tweak those things to your mm -hmm. common purpose mm -hmm. and always be about the customer. So we're still like rats to a cheese in BF Skinner's box in psychology. And we have to redefine what cheese looks like and have a whole different orientation to that. So thank you. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you thank you so much for your insights, your wealth of experience um, and being willing to rattle the, the cage in your own industries that you've worked with. And it gives a lot of courage to people listening on our show today. So how can people find out about you if they want to learn more about um, your, your work? In, in the world today? Um, well, I'm, 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 I'm Hugh Hessing. I, I'm there on LinkedIn. He's probably the, the best place to, to come and get me. Um, any advice? I'm um, looking for my next corporate role. And in the interim, I'm helping out startups, scale-ups, and some fairly big service management companies with their strategies. And um, having a lot of fun, actually. It's, it's nice having meetings and building relationships with new people at a time in my career which aren't transactional in, no, in basis. So it, it's, a, it's a really good time. Yeah. yeah. So I'd love to meet more people, love to help where I can. Excellent. Hugh, on behalf of all of us at Straight Talk Live, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Zach. Pleasure. And, and lastly, next week, uh, here's what we're going to get into. Um, we're going to be exploring the world around uh, shifting from profit to prosperity. How do leadership have to have a new manifesto in today's world with David Germain, the CIO of the RSA Group. So stay tuned. This is going to be a fantastic show. Um, David is an incredible um, mind, heart, and soul. And so we can't wait to get into that next week. Hugh, thank you again um, for gracing our show, Straight Talk Live. And for all those listening, you can find us once again on iTunes and on Spotify for the replay, as well as Facebook and YouTube, or go to our website, straighttalk.live for all of our replays. Okay, thank you all. Signing off. Get out there and have that straight talk with, with those important people in your life. Incredible. Thank you. Good night. Adios. Adios.